0: Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this episode number 27 on drugs of abuse, we have with us Dr. Margaret Thompson and Dr. Lisa Thurger. Dr. Thompson is an emergency physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and the medical director of the Ontario Poison Centre at the Hospital for Sick Children. She's double certified in emergency medicine by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada and the American Board of Emergency Medicine. She is also a fellow of the American College of Medical Toxicology. Dr. Lisa Thurger is an emergency physician at Sunnybrook Health Science Centre in Toronto she is the emergency medicine undergraduate coordinator for that site. She completed her residency training at the University of Toronto, as well as a fellowship in clinical pharmacology. Dr. Thurger is a clinical toxicologist at the Ontario Poison Centre at the Hospital for Sick Children. Some of the most challenging cases we see in the ED are patients with substance abuse problems. Use of illicit drugs is widespread in Canada and is not only confined to one geographic location... It reaches across all socioeconomic and educational boundaries, whether it be the savvy businessman using crack cocaine or the street person using bath salts. ED utilization by these patients is about 30% greater than patients who don't use drugs, and often they present with not only a tox problem, but a trauma problem and a psychiatric problem as well. This field of illicit drug toxicology is always changing as new ways of getting high are discovered. To help us sort through both the common and not-so-common drugs of abuse, we have with us two of Canada's leading toxicologists, Dr. Margaret Thompson and Dr. Lisa Thurger. Dr. Thompson, welcome. Thank you. And Dr. Thurger.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Great. So we're going to jump right into our first case here. Our first case is that of a 38-year-old man who's brought in by ambulance after having a witnessed tonic-clonic seizure in the bathroom at a house party he was at that evening. According to EMS, the patient was with his friend in the bathroom, who witnessed the patient suddenly fall to the floor and seize, and estimated that the seizure lasted about 10 minutes. He denied that they were using illicit drugs, but did admit to drinking a few beers. EMS personnel were unable to obtain any past medical history, medications, or social history. On arrival, the patient appeared to be post-ictal with a GCS of 8, heart rate of 155, a blood pressure of 175 over 115, a respiratory rate of 30, and an O2 sat of 96%. His temperature was 37.6. He was found frothing at the mouth with some blood-tinged saliva. Pulses were bounding. His chest was clear, skin was warm and sweaty with normal color. There were no signs of head trauma or obvious extremity trauma. Pupils were dilated, but reactive limb reflexes were brisk throughout. So let's start with Dr. Thurger. How would you initially manage this patient?
1: So this is an interesting case because the approach to this patient isn't necessarily toxicologic focus. It's it's an approach to a patient with a decreased level of awareness who has seized. So although this is a toxicology session and it's top on our list right now, we have to have a broad approach to it. And so What I like to stress is that the approach to the patient with a decreased level of awareness is very general and it focuses on, of course, something we all know about, which is our ABCs. And then we move on to something important that people forget about, which is our universal antidotes, which I can expand on later, considering some decontamination methods, and then just a thorough history and physical exam of the patient, looking for an obvious toxidrome, speaking with personnel, either friends or family or paramedics who brought the patient in, trying to get a better story. Moving on to our ancillary tests like blood tests and ECGs and x-rays, etc. And then not till the very end do we think about sort of our, our fancy antidotes or, or other methods that we have that are specific to toxicology. So even though this patient may have ingested a toxin, our approach to this patient and our initial management has to be quite broad and follow sort of that general that general approach to any patient with a decreased level of awareness.
0: Okay. So you did mention the ABCs. Let's start with the airway. In trauma, according to the ATLS protocols, we're taught to intubate any patient who's a GCS of eight or less as a general guideline. How is this rule, so to speak, different in toxicologic patients?
1: I mean, I think it should be individualized for each patient. Often the toxicologic patient will have a decreased level of awareness or decreased level of consciousness and they may seem to be about a GCS of eight, but actually sometimes they're they're breathing well on their own. They've maintained their airway and their level of consciousness and awareness may change with time and may not necessarily need intubated. The intubation is important for if you're as suspicious of a large overdose or so a, a pending airway obstruction or losing their airway. It's also important if you want to secure their airway for decontamination at a later point. But I think each patient, it needs to be individualized. If you're anticipating something terrible to happen, if it's a potentially huge overdose, and and they're going to even decrease their level of consciousness quickly, then they need to be intubated prophylactically. I think this particular guy has
2: had a seizure. He's had evidence of that from history and from frothing at his mouth, etc. And the natural history of that is to get better. You're postictal and you're improving. And so an assessment, again, in five minutes, if you've got a temporary, no worry at that particular time, as Lisa was mentioning. In five minutes, he may be a 10 or he
1: may be a 15, And right now his vitals look not too bad, given what he's gone through. He's actually sort of holding his own at this point.
0: Okay. So let's say you decide this patient does need airway protection for whatever reason. You get a history that he's taken a massive overdose and you expect him to get worse, for example. So you start your rapid sequence intubation steps. What induction agent would you choose in a patient who's cocaine intoxicated or you suspect has cocaine on board?
1: In terms of induction agent, he has a good enough blood pressure now that we don't have to worry about something that's going to make him too hypotensive or depress his, you know, his respirate too much. So people have their favorites, but I mean, at this point, propofol would be appropriate or midazolam, but it's not something we're worried too much that he's going to become too hypotensive. The other thing about benzos or about the midazolam and cocaine
2: is Cocaine does stimulate the release of norepinephrine from a lot of different mechanisms and benzodiazepines have been shown to decrease sympathetic outflow as well as to protect the heart for a number of different drugs, but most of the evidence is with the drugs of abuse. So I think I would go with midazolam personally, just from that point of view.
0: Mm, That's interesting because, you know, generally in RSI... Medazolam was what we used, you know, 20, 15 years ago, and it's kind of fallen out of favor in general for propofol and ketamine. And so in, in this sort of patient, you might consider midazolam over those newer agents.
2: For that particular reason, yes. Okay.
0: And how about in terms of a paralytic agent? Would things change in a toxicologic patient in terms of your choice of paralytic agent if you decided to paralyze the patient?
2: My personal mm-hmm. bias is to... Stay away from succinylcholine with the drugs of abuse or the unknown just because of the potential for rhabdo and you know prolonged seizure if it was truly 10 minutes. Will you get into trouble with it? Probably not. You have a cardiogram as an instant diagnostic tool too. You've got them hooked up to a monitor. You get a 12-lead cardiogram. You see massively peak T-waves or the sine wave of a, a severe hyperkalemia. For sure, you're not going to use succinylcholine. But it depends on the scenario. If it's just sinus tachycardia and otherwise normal, lots of people would get away with it. It takes a long time for the potassium to be released from muscle cells in this acute setting. So it's always a caveat. Um, but if that's the only thing you're familiar with and you're a doc in the community that's not used anything other than succinylcholine in their training, then go with what you're comfortable with instead of trying something new at that particular moment.
0: Mm -hmm. So just to clarify there, in patients who have cocaine intoxication, there's a high risk of them going into rhabdomyolysis, especially if they've had a seizure, and rhabdomyolysis causes hyperkalemia, and succinylcholine, one of its side effects, is that it causes hyperkalemia, and so that's why you might want to consider another paralytic agent.
2: Right. Right. And certainly contraindicated if you had evidence of hyperkalemia on your cardiogram.
0: Okay. So in terms of sedation, uh, Dr. Thompson, you had mentioned benzodiazepines as a first-line medication that you might want to use as an induction agent. In patients who have cocaine toxicity in general, what about antipsychotics like Haldol? Are these reasonable second-line medications for sedation for patients with cocaine intoxication?
2: my personal opinion is no it's benzos 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 and if those fail more benzos <laughs> <laughs> perhaps propofol in that you know when they all fail but because of the mechanism by which cocaine acts and because of the sympathetic stimulation when they're high i would prefer to go with benzos because of the protective effect Haldol has the potential, if you go back to old literature, to lower the seizure threshold. And this is a gentleman who's already seized for a prolonged time and certainly has some evidence that it can prolong the QT and so then makes you more at risk of having dysrhythmias secondary to the cocaine plus, you know, an antipsychotic as well. These patients are truly not psychotic and are not hallucinating So that, you know, you don't don't typically need something like that to stop hallucinations when you're dealing with cocaine.
1: You see all over the toxicology literature that Haldol lowers the seizure threshold. And so as toxicologists and emergency physicians, we we rarely use it for toxicologic cases. The evidence... That this is true is hard to find, but it's it's, ignored, it's yeah. everywhere, and so it's kind of hard to ignore. So when we have such good drugs as benzos to help with things like agitation and sedation, you don't need to go to Haldol for cases like this. And truly, if you look at half-life and the mechanism of action and such of Haldol, it takes about
2: 45 minutes for the sedative effect and the anti-hallucination effects to take effect. So. Mm-hmm. So why not use benzos? <laughs> why not use something
0: that's more rapid acting? Right, benzos, benzos, benzos. Okay, let's just back up a bit to the to the case here. So we've got this 30 year old man who had a witness seizure, and he's got a GCS of eight, heart rate of 155, blood pressure 175 over 115, respiratory rate of 30, temp of 37.6. He's warm and sweaty. Just in terms of, uh, we've been talking a bit about cocaine, but what are the other possibilities in terms of? toxicological causes of his presentation?
1: I mean, this presentation is very much a toxidrome picture of the sympathomimetics, especially given that he was so agitated, he's also sweaty and given his vital signs. So there are tons of great street drugs out there that give you a sympathomimetic picture. Um, cocaine is sort of our prototypical one, but any in the amphetamine category as well. So whether it be amphetamines prescription-wise or any of the methamphetamines, so crystal meth, or metcathenone, a lot of our bath salts right now that are out there, give you a sympathomimetic picture. Drugs like CAT that are on the street, and then not so familiar drugs like caffeine that's familiar to us, but we don't think of it as a drug of abuse. But certainly anyone with the right or actually wrong dose of caffeine can present with a sympathomimetic picture like this
0: as well. I'm feeling a bit shaky after my two coffees this morning already. (laughs) Okay. And this patient had a seizure pretty much any poison can cause a seizure in a high enough dose. So a seizure is not really a differentiating thing when it comes to toxicologic patients. How does your usual algorithm for controlling a seizure, we usually give benzos and then we'll give dilantin, maybe go on to phenobarb. So that usual algorithm that we have in patients who present with seizure, who we don't suspect have a a drug on board, a drug of abuse on board, how does that algorithm change when you're dealing with a poisoned patient?
2: If you go to therapeutic doses of benzos and, you know, one milligram of midazolam or one milligram of lorazepam is not a therapeutic dose. So if you've given adequate doses and had had no response, then it's more, it's probably more beneficial to go straight to phenobarb or propofol to start controlling the seizures in those patients. Phenytoin works by blocking sodium channels, excitatory sodium channels in the brain. And most toxicological seizures do not occur on that basis. They might occur on the basis of sympathomimetic outflow or more likely because GABA chloride channels are blocked. And so phenytoin doesn't work there. And so it takes you 20, 30 minutes to put down, put in an infusion of phenytoin. Even phosphenytoin takes a while um, for it to be broken down and to work that way. And so you're wasting valuable time having a patient continue to seize as well as it's not going to be effective given that you've got something that's a GABA and chloride channel problem rather than being a sodium channel problem.
0: Okay. So generally in toxicologic patients, you skip the phenytoin.
2: The phenytoin.
0: You mentioned the therapeutic dose of benzodiazepines. Could you give us an example of what kind of dosages you might use in a patient like this?
2: I'm a very aggressive benzodiazepine user, and I would use about a milligram per kilogram of valium valium equivalent. So diazepam um, would be my therapeutic dose. And if it didn't work, then I would go on and use probably propofol personally.
0: Okay. Um, And if, if their blood pressure seems like it might not be able to handle it, how do you manage that situation? Let's say you've given your huge doses of benzos and suddenly they start dropping their blood pressure.
2: How, you, how do you resuscitate any other patient with hypotension? First, to go with fluids, look at the cardiogram. Are you now dealing with sodium channel blockade in the heart? And do you have a wide QRS? Do you have to give a bicarb bolus to improve inotropy? So those would be the things that I would go to first, so that they could handle the treatment with the propofol.
0: Okay, that, that leads me nicely into my next question. This patient's blood pressure did drop, and the nurse hands you an ECG, and it shows a wide complex tachycardia. So you had mentioned sodium channel blockade. Could you just tell me exactly what would you do in that situation where you see a wide complex tachycardia in a patient who presents in a sympathomimetic syndrome?
2: So cocaine would then be the prototypical drug that could cause that because cocaine, besides being a sympathomimetic, works many other ways. One of those other ways is to block sodium channels. It's a local anesthetic. So if it blocks sodium channels in the heart, the QRS widens out and the inotropy decreases. So just like any other sodium channel blocker, you give bicarbolases. So start with a mill equivalent per kilo of sodium bicarb. If that didn't narrow it down, improve the blood pressure, I'd double the dose and give a second bolus of
1: the same. And don't be fooled by just thinking you can hang sort of a a liter of, of D5 with some sodium bicarb in it. It's better to give the boluses, watch the QRS narrow, and then if you do see it, then start your infusion. But always start with your boluses first. Because you're okay. trying to overcome the
2: sodium channel blockade. And if you do give a normal saline solution, it's no extra saline that we always, or no extra sodium that we always have floating around. So give the bolus because you're trying to overcome that blockade with a whole bunch of sodium at that receptor temporarily.
1: Similar to what you do with your TCA overdoses, right? Because the mechanism is the same sodium channel blockade in both, bolus with sodium bicarb. And there is some evidence that using 3%
2: saline as well may be beneficial in those patients if bicarb hasn't worked. So in the extreme case, you might have to even go on to 3% saline.
0: And so Dr. Thurger, the differential that you think about when you're thinking about a patient who has sodium channel blockade might present with a wide QRS complex And you're thinking of giving bicarb, but you're not sure what's causing it. What's your differential in that case?
1: Well, just for the record, this isn't necessarily a differential I want to be known for, but it was a differential I came up with (laughs) when I was uh, doing my fellowship. And the differential we used is called pasta caca. So it might seem a bit bizarre, but it actually lists uh, all the drugs that I like to keep in mind that have sodium channel blockade. So the first P is for the phenothiazines, and there are a number of A's in the differential of pasta caca, but the first A is the antihistamine, so drugs like uh, diphenhydramine or dimenhydrinate. Um, S is for sodalol, T obviously for our TCAs, and the second A is for our antipsychotics, C for cocaine, Another A is for our antispasmodic drugs, like like cyclobenzaprine. The second C is for chloroquine, and our fourth and final A is for both the antimalarials, but also um, some of our antiarrhythmics. So, like we mentioned, our class one B antiarrhythmics, like procainamide. And- mm-hmm. Yeah, procainamide, exactly.
0: So, this patient with the wide complex tachycardia, you're assuming is because of sodium channel blockade. You give this patient a couple amps of sodium bicarb. And the QRS seems to be narrowing a little bit, but the patient's blood pressure isn't getting any better. The patient's now crashing. Are there any other options for this patient who we've assumed now is a cocaine overdose?
2: So if you're trying to correct the QRS and make it narrow and therefore improve inotropy in the heart so that your blood pressure then increases... I'd give another couple of amps of bicarb and see where it was you know, going with that. If that still didn't work, I'd give 100 cc's, of 3% normal saline. And if that still didn't narrow down the QRS complex and you still didn't improve your blood pressure, there is some theoretical benefit to giving lipid emulsion for a cocaine patient, but probably wouldn't be as beneficial for some of the other sympathomimetic drugs of abuse. Cocaine in particular is very fat-soluble, it's a local anesthetic, it's meant to go into the brain and a lot of fat-soluble tissues. So lipid emulsion might be indicated in that case. And Otherwise, it's just aggressive supportive care that you might be able to do for this patient.
0: Okay. And Dr. Thurgood, can you just review for us what lipid emulsion therapy is all about and what the toxicologic indications are for lipid emulsion therapy based on what we know to date?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, lipid emulsion therapy, people often ask, what is it exactly? And physically, it's a bag of TPN, or it's a bag of, say, 10 or 20% lipid. It's administered usually to patients for nutrition. However, it's been shown in our toxicological literature, mainly in case reports, that for lipophilic drugs, it can give some benefit. And the the theory is, there are a couple theories, but the main one that's believed is basically a lipid sink theory. So that the, the lipid in the circulation will draw out any drugs that love to be around lipids so any lipophilic drugs and therefore you can excrete it and some of the case reports out there are really impressive but you have to keep in mind it's for certain lipophilic drugs and those mainly that we see in the literature are drugs like calcium channel blockers lipophilic beta blockers uh, rtcas haloperidol, and probably one of the most impressive cases out there is for Welbutrin as well. Now, street drugs like cocaine, are showing to be lipophilic as well, or thought to be. And then there's obviously other drugs that enjoy lipids, and it can be tried for those. There's little harm to go along with it, and it's very easy to use. It's a 100-mil bolus that you administer, and then you basically infuse the remaining 500-milliliter bag over a short period of time, and there's little harm that has been shown to go along with it. So as Dr. Thompson mentioned, if this patient is crashing from hypotension and cocaine use, and you've tried your other standard Therapies, it's certainly worth a try.
0: And in terms of other arrhythmias associated with cocaine, what else besides the sodium channel blockade causing a, a widened QRS, what other arrhythmias are associated with cocaine?
2: It's a, certainly the sinus tachycardia. And atrial fibrillation has been suggested, PSVT ventricular tachycardia. It's been reported to cause some QT prolongation at times as well, but that's not a major effect of it. Tersod, I guess, would be potential because of the QT prolongation, but it's very rare, not often recorded with cocaine.
0: So let's say you've stabilized this patient, you've intubated this patient, you haven't used sucks to intubate the patient, you've used lots of benzodiazepines, you've narrowed the QRS complex, Their blood pressure is okay, and you're happy with this patient. Wait for your blood work to come back and see how they do. Let's talk about a different patient. Let's say you have a cocaine-intoxicated patient who comes in with an extremely high blood pressure, let's say 240 on 140. How would you manage this hypertensive urgency or emergency in the cocaine-intoxicated patient differently to other hypertensive crises?
1: So the caveat, as many of the listeners will know, is that um, intravenous beta blockers should not be used to control hypertension in the cocaine-intoxicated patient. And you'll find reports in the literature that maybe it's okay to do it, and I think the message should just be, just don't do it, because why do you need to? There's a lot of other drugs that we have that are very useful for controlling blood pressure in the hypertensive emergency in the cocaine-intoxicated patient. So why not use those? So sodium nitroprusside is a great drug to use. Phentolamine, I would say, would probably be one of the first-line drugs for treating hypertensive, hypertension in the cocaine-intoxicated patient. And it's a direct alpha antagonist, and that's, that's what's going to help us the most to prevent that squeeze that we get from all of the epinephrine and the norepinephrine and the catecholamines that are in surplus in the cocaine-intoxicated patients. So I would say go with phentolamine or sodium nitroprusside. Um, if there's ischemia in there, then the sodium nitroprusside is perfect, along with the nitroglycerin. So lots of other drugs that can be used. Should be stressed too that benzos, 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 again, as Dr. Thompson mentioned, will help not only with the agitation It will also really control the blood pressure, and, I mean, you could use that before any of your hypertensive drugs, and you'll find that in most cases, that will help the blood pressure. There's really no need to give an IV beta blocker for blood pressure in these patients. If you're considering it for ischemic effects, your beta blocker can be given safely, probably orally within the first 24 hours once this patient has been stabilized, Some people think, just in terms of the beta blocker debate, that, well, even if I use labetalol, what's the big deal? Because it's a mix of alpha and beta. But if you look at it physiologically, it's actually still 7 to 1, beta to alpha. So don't be fooled that labetalol has a nice mix of alpha and beta effect, because it really is mostly a beta blocker. So I would say just don't do the beta blockers. Lots of other drugs to choose from.
0: As for an algorithm with cocaine-intoxicated patients who present in a hypertensive emergency or urgency, first line would be benzos, 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 and then if that's not controlling the blood pressure, you'd go next to sodium nitroprusside, and if that's not working, you can use phentolamine. The dosage for phentolamine is 1 to 2.5 milligrams IV, and then titrate up from there, Usually about 5 to 10 milligrams is needed to get the blood pressure under control. So let's say this 38-year-old male came in with chest pain. Why are cocaine users at higher risk than the general population for cardiac ischemia, and how do we treat them differently than our usual chest pain patients?
1: So it's not like the old days where we used to think that all chest pain in cocaine users was due to vasospasm, and we kind of ignore it. But now it's pretty well known that people who use cocaine chronically are at real risk of having acute coronary syndromes and have real disease. So there are people who use cocaine a lot, have increased platelet aggregation. They have increased atherosclerosis. They will have the vasospasm. They have increased supply demand, being so hypotensive and tachycardic. So they have at least four real reasons to have real disease.
0: Before we go on to talking more about cardiac ischemia in cocaine users, what are some of the other things that you might consider in a patient who's used cocaine who comes in with chest pain?
2: Depends on partly how you use the cocaine. So if you snort your cocaine and you do a big valsella maneuver as you're snorting that cocaine to get a bigger high, you can be at risk of a pneumothorax or even a pneumomediastinum as a consequence of that. There might be MSK chest pain associated with you know some trauma that they may not have remembered while they were intoxicated They also are at risk for a dissection, as well as the coronary artery syndromes.
0: And in terms of how you treat these patients differently than your usual chest pain ACS patient?
1: I mean, these patients need to be treated exactly the same as any ACS patient that you deal with in the eMERGE, except for the beta blockers for any hypertension or, or tachycardia. So as we mentioned before, there are lots of other drugs for that, but um, any patient with chest pain who's using cocaine needs to be thought that they could have real disease in terms of ACS, keeping in mind you have to rule out all of the other complications that can happen like Dr. Thompson mentioned. I think if you yeah. present with a tachycardia and their chest pain, you should use
2: benzos first, but otherwise you would treat them as any other ACS patient.
0: Okay. So if they come in tachycardic and hypertensive and you think they have ACS, the alterations in your medications, you, you might use benzos. Yeah.
1: You'd use your benzos for your tachycardia and your hypertension, but you're still using all of your antiplatelets, um, your heparin, um, all the other same drugs. They would go to the cath lab if need be for PCI. They would get repeat ECGs. It's exactly the same as any ACS patient you're treating just without the beta blockers.
0: Okay. And in those centers where they still might do thrombolysis, where there's no cath lab, and there's a cath lab that's far away, and they decide on thrombolysis for their ACS patients, is there a contraindication for thrombolysis in the cocaine-associated MI?
1: So there's no contraindication?
2: No, as long Mm -hmm. as you've got the hypertension under control, Mm -hmm. for example, because it is
1: contraindicated when you've got pressures of one... 240 over 140 like you were suggesting before or that you've ruled out an aortic dissection clinically in your mind right yeah. mm-hmm. you've got the
2: right diagnosis
1: you've yeah. got the usual indications for it with sd segment elevation
2: etc then there's no contraindication
0: at this point i'd like to review cocaine chest pain remember first that patients who use cocaine are not only at higher risk for acs but they're also at higher risk for pneumothorax as well as aortic dissection In terms of ACS, cocaine promotes vasospasm acutely and also accelerates atherosclerosis over the long run, so I like to consider chronic cocaine users with chest pain as 20 or 30 years older than they are when deciding on pretest probability for ischemia. So if a 30-year-old cocaine user comes in with chest pain, I consider their risk for ACS like I would a 50 or a 60-year-old. Actually, the typical profile of the patient most at risk for cocaine-associated ACS is a young male cigarette smoker who regularly uses cocaine. Another interesting point when it comes to assessing MI risk in the cocaine user is that they often present atypically. In fact, in one study, only 44% of patients with cocaine-associated MI reported experiencing chest pain. Dyspnea and diaphoresis were particularly common, and so if the patient presents with shortness of breath or sweating, you should be thinking about cardiac ischemia. This is similar to the very elderly and diabetic patients who often present atypically with dyspnea rather than chest pain when they're having an MI. In terms of altering the treatment of cardiac ischemia in a cocaine user compared to the general population, use benzos if they're tachycardic, but otherwise these patients should be treated the same as the general population. What about beta blockers? For acute MI in the general population, the most recent ACLS guidelines recommend not using IV beta blockers in the acute setting, but that they can be used once the patient is stabilized within the first 24 hours, and that's usually left up to the admitting physician. For cocaine-associated MI, we should avoid using IV beta blockers in the acute setting just like in the general population, but once they're stabilized and admitted, oral beta blockers may actually be beneficial to them as they are for the general population. In fact, in a retrospective cohort study of 363 patients admitted with positive urine cocaine tests, beta blockers were associated with a statistically significant reduction in the incidence of MI and lower death rate. What about PCI versus thrombolysis for cocaine-associated STEMI? Some experts suggest that early PCI should be strongly preferred given the increased risk for severe hypertension, intracranial hemorrhage, and aortic dissection in the cocaine users. However, as our experts explained, these are the usual contraindications to thrombolysis that we always go through in all our patients. And so thrombolysis should be considered for the cocaine-associated STEMI, just like all other STEMIs, as long as you've ruled out severe hypertension, ICH, and aortic dissection. Next, we're going to be talking about the value of serum alcohol levels. Let's say this patient who came in altered but admitted to drinking alcohol Let's say they came in and you weren't quite sure what poison they had taken or what was the cause of their altered level of consciousness. How does an alcohol level help us or hinder us in trying to work out what the cause of the altered level of consciousness is?
2: I think if you have an elevated alcohol level, it can help you decide that the patient's depressed level of consciousness could be because of the alcohol. It doesn't rule out other causes. And a single alcohol level in time doesn't mean that the patient is going to improve necessarily or doesn't mean that the patient couldn't get worse because had they had that whole bottle of rum or several beers as they you know were waiting in the waiting room in the emergency department or they drank the hand wash in the emergency department, there's an ongoing process of absorption and elimination of alcohol. So a single level in time could just reflect what's happening at that moment. And absorption, despite this being a liquid and despite you usually thinking that alcohols are gonna be absorbed almost instantaneously, can actually occur over several hours, especially if there is pain, there's other substances on board that might delay gastric emptying. There's a lot, if they've eaten a lot just before they came into the emergency department. So your blood alcohol level of 50 millimoles per liter, which is significantly elevated, could be 100 in an hour and you then have to protect their airway. So remember to continue to assess your patient. A blood alcohol level that's low does not explain an altered level of consciousness at the time that you're seeing them though. Yes, that low level could become higher if it was just that they drank instantaneously before coming into the emergency department, but it doesn't explain what's going on with the patient now. So a blood alcohol level of 10 millimoles per liter, which is legal, the legal limit to drink and drive in Ontario, for example, should not change your mentation at all. If you usually live at 100 and now you're 10, yes, you could have had an alcohol withdrawal seizure and that could explain your presentation now, but a low level makes you think about other things that should be going on and should be investigated in this particular patient. Have they had a subarachnoid hemorrhage? Have they had, you know, a trauma to their head? Have they had a seizure? Are they hypoglycemic? Are they having, Right. All the usual altered level of consciousness approach.
0: In the last couple of years, there's been quite a few reports throughout North America of necrotizing vasculitis in patients who use cocaine that's thought to be caused by a contaminant in the cocaine called levamisole. Can you tell our listeners what they need to know about diagnosing and managing the, managing these patients?
2: We think up to 70, 80, maybe 90% of the cocaine that comes into North America in the past has been cut with levamisole. I can't tell you what the epidemiology of it is today. It's coming from sores, it's not coming from dealers here in North America. Levamisole was used as a deworming agent in animals in the past may still be legal for that use. It used to be used as a chemotherapeutic agent in children, for example, with rheumatoid arthritis or with cancers, but was withdrawn from the market because of the side effects of it. And one of them was necrotizing fasciitis. The First thing to do is to recognize what this illness is. If somebody comes in with a brown patch on the tips of their ears, the tips of their nose, on their extremities, And that's probably an early lesion that could progress to a far more distinct and horrible lesion. Its only treatment is stop using cocaine contaminated with lavamazole. So it's the say no to crack campaigns and coke campaigns and such that the only cure is to withdraw from the substance. And it is completely reversible if you stop using. But it's difficult to get a user who's addicted, to stop using. There is a probably a certain patient profile that will fit this because there's thousands and millions of patients who have used cocaine in the past, and not everybody gets this, and most people have been exposed to it. There may be rheumatological factors that make you more likely or some genetic factors that make you more likely to get it from the levamazole. The other thing you should remember is that these patients are also at risk for neutropenias and significant neutropenias. So if you see any of those lesions or even in the patient who admits to using cocaine on a regular basis, you should probably do a CBC to give them fair medical care because they may be harboring, they may be walking around with a white count, a neutrophil count of 0.1. And that then puts them at risk for then
1: getting all these opportunistic infections. And this is often how it's picked up as patients come in and have low neutrophil counts, no white counts. And then if someone thinks to ask, well, do you use cocaine, then it comes up. So that's how a lot of these were discovered and right. how it was discovered that levamisole was actually in the cocaine.
2: Right. Now, you know, the source is not trying to kill their users because then your market would eventually be, you know, dry up as well. So I'm not sure whether epidemiologically they started to remove it and they're using other fillers. We've been aware that there's a ton of hydroxyzine or adorax in the cocaine that's available in the city of Toronto as well. And for a while before the Lavamazole, there was Diltiazem in a lot of the cocaine that was in the city. So probably, again, added at source. So, you know, moment to moment, there's always something being added to cocaine, maybe with medicinal properties, maybe with um, similar, you know, local anesthetic properties, or maybe just as filler, One other thing that I might mention, and again, it goes back to pathophysiology. If you've taken a cocaine overdose, you stimulate your sympathetic nerve endings, you release norepinephrine from your cells or epinephrine from your adrenal adrenal medulla, you get to a point where you overstimulate and you've got nothing left. That's when you've got the cocaine crash. So you go through the phase of sodium channel blockade, but then you get to the point where you've got Absolutely no more epinephrine or norepinephrine to stimulate receptors, and the patient goes from a blood pressure of 200 over 100 to a blood pressure of 20. That's when you've got no more of the sympathomimetic intrinsically available to you. That's why, when we're treating these hypertensive emergencies that come with cocaine, and any other syndrome that comes with cocaine, we want to use drugs that are fast on, fast off. And so the sodium nitroprusside, the sodium nitrates, um, you want to use those as that you can turn off and then turn off the effect. That's why a beta blocker or more long acting substance may also be contraindicated is because when they crash, you're done.
0: Here I'd like to review some of our toxicological and cocaine in particular pearls. First, the ABCs. Intubation decisions in toxicology in general depend very much on the substance taken, the amount taken, whether you anticipate their condition to worsen or not, or whether you need to decontaminate with gastric lavage in an altered patient. When it comes to RSI for these patients who are cocaine intoxicated in a sympathomimetic state... Dr. Thompson recommends using good old midazolam as an induction agent, and in terms of paralytic agent, sucks should probably be avoided because there's an increased incidence of rhabdomyolysis in the cocaine-intoxicated patient, which leads to hyperkalemia, the most well-known contraindication to succinylcholine. Remember to get an ECG early in your resuscitation of any tox patient, as it can give you a lot of clues as to what's going on and can help you diagnose severe hyperkalemia and keep you out of trouble. In terms of sedation, benzos are the first, second, and third line in cocaine toxicity as they are the safest medication for sedation in these patients. Avoid Haldol because it might lower the seizure threshold and may prolong the QT interval, which cocaine can as well. In terms of how our usual algorithm for controlling seizures changes when you're dealing with a poison patient, phenytoin should be left out because it takes too long to work And doesn't work against the neurotransmitters that are causing the seizure in most TOX patients. So for first line, so first line is benzos like lorazepam or diazepam in therapeutic dosages of one milligram per kilogram of of diazepam equivalent. And if that's not immediately effective, then rather than going to phenytoin, phenobarb or propofol should be used as second line. What about what about sodium channel blockade? This is one of the toxicological causes of death in cocaine overdose, as well as TCAs, local anesthetics, chloroquine, antipsychotics, procainamide, and a few others that Dr. Thurger listed in her mnemonic Pastacaca. Patients who've just used cocaine have ha- patients who've just used cocaine and have a wide complex tachycardia should be assumed to have sodium channel blockade and need immediate repeated bicarb boluses. And if the bicarb boluses aren't working, add a bolus of 100 cc's of hypertonic saline until the QRS has been narrowed. This will prevent cardiovascular collapse. And if the patient's crashing despite fixing the QRS, consider a bolus of 100 cc's of lipid emulsion therapy followed by an infusion of 500 cc's, since cocaine is a lipophilic drug. And what about treating hypertensive emergencies in these patients? Management of hypertensive emergencies in the cocaine-intoxicated patient is different to any other hypertensive crisis. To help you remember the algorithm that we suggest in the cocaine-intoxicated patient, I'll go over it again. First, benzos, benzos, benzos. Then, sodium nitroprusside is probably the first line antihypertensive, and consider fentolamine 1 to 2.5 milligrams IV to start and then titrate up as a second line. Our experts recommend avoiding IV beta blockers in these patients. Finally, levamisole, which has been used in the last couple of years as a filler when cutting cocaine, is associated with necrotizing vasculitis and neutropenia. A CBC with differential should be obtained on all patients who admit to cocaine use with symptoms of fever or necrotizing vasculitis, or even if they have a tiny brown patch on their ear, nose, or extremity, as this may develop into horrid necrotizing vasculitis, which can be completely reversed by stopping the cocaine use. So that's all we're going to talk about cocaine. Next, we're going to go on to case number two. Okay. In case number two, you're working a Friday night shift when the charge nurse asks you to come out to the ambulance bay where there's an 18-year-old female who's totally out of control. She's thrashing about in the back of her boyfriend's car. They were dancing with their friends at a warehouse party when she became agitated and confused. The boyfriend admits to both of them taking ecstasy, approximately four hours prior to arrival at the hospital, and this was her first time taking it. According to the boyfriend, she has a history of depression and is taking citalopram. After being placed into a stretcher and four-point restraints and given Ativan 2 milligrams IM, she's brought into the resuscitation room, and the patient's vitals reveal a heart rate of 140, blood pressure of 150 on 100, respiratory rate of 26, 0 2 sat of 99% and a temperature of 40.1 degrees Celsius. Her pupils are dilated but reactive. Skin is warm, sweaty, and flushed. Her chest is clear, and there's no obvious signs of trauma. Her limb reflexes are diffusely hyperreflexic, and you notice the occasional myoclonic jerk. So Dr. Thurger, this patient came in with an elevated temp. What are some of the important causes that we need to think about in the patient who presents with an elevated temp who's agitated and hot and crazy, so to speak?
1: So this is a great case. Like this case I'm drooling at, basically. (laughs) You've got ecstasy, you've got citalopram, you've got a crazy girl and a temperature. It's, It's an awesome differential diagnosis and it's what I call the hot and crazy differential diagnosis. And anyone who's heard me teach about it knows how passionate I am about it. You need to think about things that give you a high temperature and some kind of change in mental status so whether it's agitation or seizure or coma or confusion or anything along that spectrum that changes your level of awareness or your mental status. So temperature and change of mental status is what I call my hot and crazy differential diagnosis. And it does involve some toxicologic things, but also some other things So you have to keep your differential broad. Usually in the emergency department, what people think of, or the first thing they think of when people come in with an elevated temperature is something to do with infection. So sepsis or um, meningitis and encephalitis should be top of your list when there's some kind of change in mental status that goes along with your temperature. But you also have to keep it broad. So the toxicologic things that go on this differential in terms of broad categories are the sympathomimetics. So your cocaine and your amphetamines, your methamphetamines, too much caffeine, things like that. Your anticholinergics are important. So all of your anticholinergic drugs, whether they be prescription or your plants, like your Jimson weed, anything like that. Um, those are the two big broad categories of toxicologic things on your differential. In terms of syndromes that can raise your temperature you automatically need to think of your serotonin syndrome your neuroleptic malignant syndrome and even um, malignant hyperthermia, because that can happen 12 to 24 hours post-op so think about those and they should just spew out of your mouth all three of them together when anyone who's got an elevated temperature and a mental status change you also need to think about environmental issues so do they have heat exhaustion or heat heat stroke you need to think about metabolic causes so pheo or more commonly thyroid storm or thyrotoxicosis, you need to think of a couple things that don't necessarily raise your temperature up to 40 degrees, but will give you a mildly elevated temperature, like ASA toxicity or withdrawal. So both of those entities will give you a mild elevation in temperature, they'll give you a mild change in your mental status, and they're not going to be sort of the slam dunk at a temperature of 40 degrees, but you need to keep them on your differential because those are the mimickers of things like sepsis or serotonin syndrome. So that's the hot and crazy differential that I love to talk about. Be wary of MDMA with high temperatures because although the sympathomimetics and the anticholinergics can all give you high temperatures, from my experience, MDMA seems to be the biggest culprit when it comes to high, high temperatures. That seems to be the one that really gives you the severe hyperthermias. And they're the ones that don't do well. As we mentioned, having a high temperature from toxicologic cause can be bad news. So think of MDMA when you have a high temp.
0: In terms of your general approach to the acute management of the hot and crazy patient, how do you approach the the ABCs and the mm-hmm. initial management?
1: Similar to our approach of any patient with a change in mental status. It's going to be your ABCs. It's going to be thinking about your universal antidote. So not necessarily, you know, naloxone is going to be top of our list because this is a a different presentation. Usually um, anyone with opioid toxicity does not present hot and crazy, but you do need to force yourself to think about the the universal antidote. So is this person hypoglycemic? But after you move on from the ABCs and the universal antidotes, and you consider your decontamination, you move on to examining the patient and your ancillary test, but then it's mainly supportive care for these people. So there's not going to be, you know, magic blood tests that diagnose if this patient has serotonin syndrome or you're not relying, you're certainly not relying on urine drug screens to tell you if this patient has cocaine toxicity. It's gonna be looking at their toxidrome, forming the differential and treating them supportively. And the biggest component of supportive treatment in these patients are IV fluids, benzodiazepines for their agitation and their high temperatures. And then most important is gonna be the active cooling. So it's important to remember that any patient who has an elevated temperature due to a toxicologic cause is at a pretty high risk of mortality, and you need to do something about that temperature quickly. So you need to bring it down as fast as you can, and there's many, many methods to do that.
0: Okay. Could you give us some numbers on what the mortality is in these kinds of patients?
1: Well, it's thought that An elevated temperature from a toxicologic cause has anywhere from 50 to 75% chance of mortality. So, I like to teach, you know, residents and other learners that if you see that elevated temperature and you're at all considering that it's from a sympathomimetic or an anticholinergic, you need to treat it aggressively because that patient, you know, if you look at the odds, is not going to do well. These aren't patients that you give a gram of acetaminophen rectally to, put on a little cooling blanket, and walk away for the rest of the night. This patient needs to be treated aggressively to lower their temperature.
0: Okay. And can you just go through the practical steps of how you would cool them? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Practically, there's lots of easy things you can do right off the bat. So you want to be putting ice in their axilla and their groin. You want to be administering a cooling blanket. There's nothing wrong with that, but you can even go bigger by putting cold wet towels on the patient and having a fan nearby to cool them down that's always a good job we talk about giving to the medical students they can change the cold wet towels q to 20 minutes and keep the patient cool you can administer cold IV normal saline so four degrees saline intravenously but you can also then go on to administer that cold saline through many other methods so you can do bladder irrigation you can do peritoneal irrigation if you need to go far enough you could consider bilateral thoracostomy tubes and irrigate the thorax. You move on sort of in, in that stepwise manner until you get that temperature less than 38 degrees.
0: Okay. So your goal is to get it back to normal. That's right. Okay. And is there a rate at which you should be expecting to lower the temperature?
1: I wouldn't say there's there's an actual published rate or that the people go by. I, in my mind, want to see it down sort of within an hour. And if that's not happening, then I, I go on to more extreme measures. I think you also have to remember that a
2: patient like this needs to be intubated mm-hmm. and you need to paralyze them because you want to prevent the shivering because that mechanism itself can keep your temperature up and cause you know, increased muscle movement and such. So all those supportive measures that Lisa's talking about require that this is a patient who's been intubated. Paralyzed. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so let's say this patient you've intubated, you paralyzed, you've started all your cooling methods. Let's say you've stepped up your cooling methods, you're doing bladder irrigation, cold saline, mist, blanket, ice, the works and you're you're still having trouble and the patient's not doing well. Is is there any role for dantrolene in the treatment of these hot and crazy patients? There was a study out of CGEM in 2010 that was a review of dantrolene in patients with MDMA-related elevated TEMP, and this patient here admitted to taking ecstasy. In that review, they said that it's safe and that it could be considered.
2: It's safe. Don't think there's any good evidence that it's going to help you unless it's malignant hyperthermia.
1: I think it's uh, something at the point where we give a try. Certainly there's evidence for it with malignant hypothermia, and the anesthesiologists are quite aware of that. I, mean, I would do all those other methods we talked about first, and if the temperature isn't getting down, then you can chat with a toxicologist about it, and you could certainly consider giving it. If you have it available in your hospital. Every hospital that has an active operating
2: room is supposed to have dantrolene, based on the Canadian Anesthesiology Association recommendations. But if you were to actually call every hospital in Ontario, or in Canada, you would find that a large percentage do not. Part of the problem with recommending a medication like that is people believe that it's gonna save the patient, that it's Lazarus, that it's gonna raise you from the dead. And they put all their efforts into trying to find it when it's not available in their hospital. They call in the pharmacist, they go to the outpatient pharmacy, they call a whole bunch of other hospitals. And they're forgetting to do the active, supportive care that's more important for these patients.
1: Dantrolene for this toxicity is similar to ciproheptadine for serotonin syndrome, or it's like bromocryptine for neuroleptic malignant syndrome. It's safe to use, but is it going to save this patient? Probably not. What's going to save this patient is active, aggressive cooling and supportive care.
0: Let's go over the basics of MDMA or ecstasy. It's a drug that's used for its euphoric effects at parties like raves and such, and it's an amphetamine. It also has serotonergic effects. It has some hallucinogenic effects, but they're much less intense than something like LSD. The peak effect is at 90 minutes, and the duration of action is about 4 to 6 hours, and its elimination half-life is 8 hours. The usual cause of death is from hyperthermia with seizures, DIC, rhabdomyolysis, and renal failure, similar to serotonin syndrome, and hyponatremia. Dr. Thurger is now going to explain the mechanisms of hyponatremia in patients who have used MDMA.
1: There's a few mechanisms, partially the MDMA acting directly in the kidney, but also because of the amount of water that these patients tend to drink while they're dancing at raves, they they are at risk for hyponatremia. So we have to think about that. And then we also have to be aware of serotonin syndrome in the MDMA patient, whether it's patients who are also taking SSRIs or even just MDMA on its own, first-time use has been shown to cause serotonin syndrome. So when these patients come in with high temperatures, serotonin syndrome needs to be on your differential.
0: Let's move on to talking a little bit about serum and urine drug screens in general. When should they be ordered? How should we interpret them?
1: I mean, my general teaching point is drug screens are for losers and that uh, <laughs> there's no need for them at all in the emergency department. Now, you have to be careful of the terminology. So there's, there's serum tests that we do for certain drugs so we can measure blood levels of a variety of drugs like ASA, acetaminophen, a lot of our anti-epileptics, alcohol levels, toxic alcohol levels, digoxin, etc. And those are often valuable tests and they help us clinically. There's also urine drug screens, which I am not a proponent of except for the rare, rare case. And the reason for this is that First of all, you should be able to manage your patient clinically based on their toxidrome and their presentation and the other sort of valuable ancillary tests that we have in the emergency department. The urine drug screens take quite a while to come back. And even when they do come back, you should have already managed your patient to begin with. But also the things that you find, the results that you have in those urine tests, the metabolites that are there, doesn't mean that that is what's causing the patient's presentation so you could have a cocaine metabolite in your urine but it you could have used cocaine five days prior so the patient the hot and crazy patient that comes in you may find a cocaine metabolite in the urine and say oh we've got a slam dunk it's cocaine toxicity but meanwhile you've missed their sepsis or you've missed their meningitis Mm, so so it can be misleading it can be very misleading there are it's fraught with false positives false negatives there's drugs that cross react Basically, I say in the acute management of the emergency patient, the urine drug screen plays no role. Very different from the blood test that we can get, so the two are very different. We're talking
2: about the patient with the substance abuse in terms of when you do a a urine drug screen. I might order a urine drug screen on a child abuse patient, for example. That's different. That's not that's not the scenario that we're talking about here. And the other reason I might do it is the sympathetic patient with a first-time seizure. So 17-year-old kid presents to the emergency department with a first-time seizure, absolutely denies that they've taken any substance of abuse. I get a drug screen because my thinking is then you have epilepsy if there's no other cause. So you're not hypoglycemic there's no structural lesion on a CT, I've ordered the lesser electrolytes, etc., and find no reason for a first-time seizure. If I do a urine screen and I find that it's positive for amphetamines, for example, then I'm going to confront the patient to find out for sure that they did or they did not. And yes, there are false positives. And so if the patient tells me that they are on Ritalin, and they have a false positive amphetamine screen from maybe it's a Ritalin side effect, and maybe they don't have epilepsy, maybe I don't have to take away their license and commit them to taking phenytoin or carbamazepine or some other medication for the rest of their life. So it might have some benefits for these isolated cases, but for this patient with the hot and crazy Toxidrome, you don't have time for that to come back, and you don't really care.
0: Time's always been by your side, friends, until it passes you by. In this particular case, we've got our hot and crazy patient who admitted to taking ecstasy. The blood work comes back. The creatinine is 380. The sodium is 112. And the CK is 4200. How would you manage this patient now?
1: I mean, this patient, in addition to the management of the ecstasy toxicity, is both hyponatremic and showing signs of rhabdomyolysis. Now, the hyponatremia can be expected in the ecstasy patient, so we, we do see that. And the rhabdomyolysis is also anticipated, so she needs to be treated for both of those. Her sodium being so low, so she's quite hyponatremic. Assuming that this is something that happened fairly quickly and not something that's been going on for her, she probably deserves a treatment with hypertonic saline of 3%, about 100 to 200 mils. Her rhabdomyolysis deserves judicious fluids as well. Look how dehydrated
2: she is. Mm-hmm. You know, she's got a lot of insensible fluid losses that you you know, otherwise don't appreciate. She's been dancing all night. She's probably not been replacing her... F- her fluids, she's been sweaty, as you described when she came into the emergency room. She's hyperthermic. A ton of reasons for her to be significantly dehydrated. And these patients can use five to six liters of fluid before you get some adequate urine output. And we're trying to prevent her from getting injury to her kidney from the rhabdo. Certainly that... CK of 4,000 is nowhere close to causing injury to kidney. So her creatinine that's all the way up to 300 already is not from the rhabdo. That's probably just all pre-renal.
0: This patient might be heading towards rhabdomyolysis or might have rhabdomyolysis. What are the risk factors for rhabdomyolysis? In other words, which patients should we think about ordering a CK in to rule out rhabdomyolysis in general?
2: If you're talking about the drug intoxicated patient. It would be the patient who may have had a prolonged length of stay on a floor, for example. So it's not necessarily just sympathomimetic patients, but a heroin or other opioid overdose might have been found down for a long time. That patient potentially has rhabdo. Patient with prolonged seizures potentially has rhabdo. Patient who's had excessive motor activity, for example, your excited delirium patient and a cocaine patient, for example, would be another patient where you would suspect rhabdo. I usually make it a point to do a CK on all of my intoxicated patients.
0: The patients who do end up having rhabdomyolysis, they often require many, many liters of saline, 10 liters of fluid in the first 24 hours. What are some of the downsides of giving so much fluid in these patients?
2: I think there's a risk of metabolic acidosis from the saline that you're giving these patients. But you have to balance that with your potential for renal failure from the rhabdomyolysis. So that's usually not a problem in the emergency department. We start the fluids and they get admitted to the ICU and the ICU then manages the potential acidosis.
0: Let's continue with the case. So after stabilizing the patient, you go to see a few other patients in the emergency department and there's an overhead call for you to come to recess. Stab. When you get to the resuscitation room, the nurse is performing CPR. The patient's had a cardiac arrest. The nurse tells you that the patient suddenly became unresponsive and flatlined on the monitor. In general, how would you alter your ACLS protocols for the poisoned patient?
2: Now, we know that this particular patient has taken ecstasy. Is there anything specific about ecstasy in an arrested situation that you might do? recheck the glucose in this particular case because you can get significantly hypoglycemic in ecstasy, but that doesn't usually cause a rest. It might cause you to have a seizure or something and then to forget about the hypoglycemia. They are like a cocaine patient and they directly act at sympathomimetic receptors and they cause a stimulation of release of norepinephrine, etc. So maybe they flatline because they've got no more adrenaline and epinephrine stores. In an ecstasy patient, you wouldn't consider bicarb. If it was cocaine arrestive. certainly you would bang in bicarb, which we don't typically do in your ACLS algorithm, for example. There are substances that can sensitize your myocardium to epinephrine. So that would be the glue-sniffer sort of patient who you find down And those patients, you would actually use a beta blocker intravenously as compared to using epinephrine intravenously to improve their situation and do CPR as you're giving the beta blocker IV, fast acting, esmolol, topolol, whatever you've got available in your emerge. So you think outside the box, a young patient who's arrested was at hyperkalemia. And again, you know, bicarb would be a benefit to that patient. Have they taken a purposeful digoxin overdose, calcium channel blocker overdose? So if, if it's a young person, you think outside the box. In this particular patient, it would just all be the same ACLS protocol. I don't think intralipid would be of any benefit for an amphetamine overdose. It's not as fat-soluble as cocaine would be. If I suspected cocaine, I might bang in intralipid after the card
1: if it's an acute large overdose and you're running a code on this patient you're not going to make them any better until you get rid of that ingestion so the ingestion still around so sometimes we do we do acls a little bit longer in these patients they're usually younger so it encourages us to do a little bit longer but you have to think that if you don't do something to decontaminate or remove that ingestion, it's still going to keep having its effect. So it's something else to think about. Right. So do you put down an NG tube and do you dump down some charcoal? Do you do a body cavity
2: search as well? Mm -hmm. And that, you know, young person is their, you know, drug Mm -hmm. that's leaking because it's a massive amount of drug and that's why they're arrested.
0: So this patient had many aspects of serotonin syndrome. First of all, they were on an SSRI. They had elevated TEMP. They had myoclonic jerks. And patients who are on an SSRI and who take ecstasy are at risk for serotonin syndrome. We did talk about serotonin syndrome in our Found Down episode. But in in particular, what is the role for ciproheptadine in patients with serotonin syndrome?
1: So again, it's not the end all be all. It's not gonna necessarily save lives. It's, it's indicated because of its mechanism. So in serotonin syndrome, you have enhanced serotonin. Ciproheptadine happens to be an antagonist at serotonin receptors. So it makes sense. It's an antihistamine. You give it PO, so that's one limitation of it. You either have to have the patient take it orally or you can give it through an NG tube, but there's no other method to give it, like intravenously, for example what's the evidence for it? So it's not strong evidence. Is there any harm to giving it? Not really. So I think it's safe to give it. I think if you're considering a clinical diagnosis of serotonin syndrome and you have it in your hospital, you can give it. But the important thing to remember, and it's similar to what we talked about with dantrolene, is you have to think of your supportive measures to treat this patient first and don't waste time trying to figure out the dose of cipreptidine and how to give it, you need to be managing the patient supportively beforehand. There's another serotonin receptor blocker, olanzapine, which is more specific
2: for the serotonin receptor. that's supposed to be responsible for some of the heat, illness, etc. that you get with serotonin syndrome. And olanzapine can be given by other methods. It doesn't have to be just be given orally. So you can give it IM, sub-Q, sublingual, depending on the form that you have available. So that might be a more likely drug to find. I'd start with low dose. I'd start with 5 milligrams. But again, it's not the be-all and the end-all that Dr. Thurger was talking
0: about. Before we go on to our next case, I'd like to review some of the key pearls from this case that we just talked about of the ecstasy intoxication. First, what are the important causes that we need to think about in the patient who presents with altered mental status and an elevated temp? In other words, what is the differential diagnosis for the patient who presents hot and crazy? Well, first, we usually think about sepsis or meningitis and encephalitis in patients with a fever, but we can't forget all the toxicologic causes of the hot and crazy patient. First, there's the simple toxidrome. There's the anticholinergic toxidrome, like TCAs or Jimson weed, for example. Don't forget that ASA toxicity can cause a slightly elevated temp and a change in mental status. Next, we should think about the three syndromes that are somewhat similar, that is the serotonin syndrome, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, and malignant hyperthermia in the post-op patient. Next, we should think about environmental causes like heat exhaustion or heat stroke, And lastly, the metabolic causes like thyroid storm and pheochromocytoma. An elevated temp from a toxicologic cause carries a 50 to 75% mortality rate. And the drug that you should think about when a patient presents with an extremely high temp with an altered mental status, like over 40 degrees Celsius, for example, is ecstasy. What about managing the hot and crazy patient? Well, of course, we do our ABCs. Then we should think about universal antidotes and decontamination. For sedation, it's benzos, benzos, benzos. And then we need to think about rapid cooling. Patients will need to be intubated and paralyzed and then cooled down. Use mist or wet towels and fans, ice packs to the groin and the axilla, cooled normal saline, and consider stepping up to bladder irrigation on bilateral thoracostomy tubes running cooled saline if none of the other things are working. If all this isn't working, consider dantrolene in the MDMA toxic hot and crazy patient. It is safe. Although there's not great evidence for it and it's difficult to find, it may help. Ecstasy toxicity can present as a sympathomimetic syndrome or a serotonin syndrome or both. Many patients with ecstasy toxicity will have severe hyponatremia and they may develop rhabdomyolysis and DIC. If they do develop severe hyponatremia, consider giving 3% hypertonic saline 100 cc's in order to prevent brain herniation as a result of edema caused by hyponatremia. And if you suspect rhabdomyolysis or they have an increased CK, give judicious boluses of normal saline to save the kidneys. Finally, consider giving them either IV olanzapine starting at 5 mg or else PO cryoheptidine via NG if nothing else is working. What about urine drug screens in general? Urine drug screens are rarely helpful in the ED in the patient who presents having used a drug of abuse. However, urine drug screens may be helpful if you suspect child abuse, and also in the patient who presents with a first-time seizure where all the usual causes of seizure have been ruled out. And how about your standard ACLS protocols for the toxicologic patient? Do they change at all? First, you need to consider decontamination early like gastric lavage via an NG tube, for example, as well as think about doing a cavity search for leaking packets that you may find in the patient who's a body packer. Force yourself to think outside the box. For example, for sodium channel blockers like cocaine, consider giving bicarb boluses. Consider intralipid therapy for lipophilic drugs like cocaine, calcium channel blockers, and Welbutrin, And for hydrocarbons like toluene, glue sniffers that is, consider IV beta blockers instead of epinephrine in the arrest situation. And in general, because the poison may have prolonged effects, you should consider running the code for longer than you might normally. Let's move on to case number three. Case number three is that of a 27-year-old man who's a Bay Street stock exchange worker who presents to the ED with a complaint of anxiety, chest pain, sweating, palpitations, and a feeling of paranoia and impending doom after taking a recreational ingestion of bath salts at a company party about four hours prior to arrival. On exam, his pulse is 120 beats per minute. Blood pressure is 170 on 100, respiratory rate is 32 breaths per minute, and temperature is 38.1 degrees Celsius. He's pacing around the triage area, demanding to see the doctor in charge. Dr. Thurger, this patient admits to ingesting bath salts. Can you tell us what are bath salts and how are they used and abused?
1: So bath salts are are a hot topic right now. Well, they've been around since about 2004, but they're becoming more popular now in our neck of the woods. And we're hearing more about it on the news. Basically, bath salts are sold and marketed as bath salts, but in fact, they contain methamphetamines. Um, They're designer methamphetamines. So it's some Chemists dealers who are designing these crystals that look like bath salts but actually contain methamphetamine and the most popular ones are mephedrone or mdpv but they have basically the same toxidrome as any other amphetamine so they'll present tachycardic hypertensive they can be agitated confused they could be in a coma they could be seizing they could be hyperthermic the twist to these is that due to the nature of their chemistry and the way these people are designing them is that we are seeing or we're hearing about patients that are presenting a little more crazy or a little more paranoid, having quite severe panic attacks and, and reporting despite this high that they're searching. They're reporting some pretty bad side effects from these drugs. It's like a drug trip gone wrong. So they do their bath salts, but they have all these side effects that they don't quite enjoy. So they're paranoid, they're agitated, they're feeling restless. Um, Sometimes they're hallucinating, but they're also, along with it, very tachycardic and hypertensive and sweaty and not fun to be around. (laughs) But otherwise, they're your typical methamphetamine, and the reason they're out there is that the producers of these could get around the legality of it by marketing them as bath salts, so they were technically legal for a while, and quite cheap, selling for about $20 a pack. So basically a cheap, legal methamphetamine that you could buy over-the-counter.
0: Okay, and this is snorted or...
1: Lots of different ways you can use it actually. You can ingest it, you can crush it and snort it, you can crush it and and melt it and inject it. So any other way that you use your other amphetamines is fair game for basalts.
0: And in terms of how you'd manage them in the emergency department, would you manage them similarly to any, any sympathomimetic other, or any amphetamine? Any
2: sympathomimetic overdose, right?
0: Mhm. You know, a, a lot of these patients who have a sympathomimetic syndrome? They come in looking like psych patients with hallucinations, delusions, agitation, violence. Sometimes, we all too often label these patients as psych patients and miss an important toxicologic emergency. In fact, one study reported that ED docs will write medically clear on the charts of up to eighty percent of patients who are later identified to have a significant medical or toxicologic problem. What are the most important clues that tell you that someone might have a toxicologic emergency rather than a purely psychiatric one?
2: I think the most important thing is talk to your patient, examine your patient, do vital signs on your patient, get a glucose on your patient. You do the seven vital signs. They will be an abnormality of your vital signs if you have a sympathomatic toxidrome or an anticholinergic toxidrome that causes you to present like that. There are very few of the sympathomimetics that will actually cause true hallucinations. Anticholinergics are substances that are more likely to cause hallucinations. Ecstasy, because it's got more serotonergic effects than other amphetamines, it might cause some alteration in your perception, but not true hallucinations, visual things, etc. Peyote, that well, has mescaline in it, is actually the only true hallucinogenic amphetamine. Bath salts are derivatives of cot or methcathinone, as Dr. Thurger suggested, are sympathomimetics primarily and will make you feel good. but they And they've gotten a bad rap as causing these horrible paranoid hallucinations and dysesthesias. But they're not as bad as what's been reported as a consequence of spice. And spice is the colloquial name for synthetic cannabinoids far more potent than true marijuana is often not detectable because we don't have the tests to do them truly those ones cause severe paranoid hallucinations and the deaths from those substances are more likely to because you have the perception that you can fly for example and you jump off a tall building because you think you can fly as compared to because of the sympathomimetic effect of the spice So those are the ones that are more worrisome from a behavioral point of view.
0: Up until now in this episode, we've talked mainly about three different sympathomimetic drugs, cocaine, MDMA, and bath salts. It's sometimes helpful to categorize street drugs into three different categories. One, sympathomimetics. Two, hallucinogens, like spice and peyote that Dr. Thompson mentioned. And then thirdly, there's the depressants. For the rest of this episode... We're going to talk about depressant drugs of abuse. So we're going to move away now from the stimulants and talk about the depressants. This is our fourth case, and this is one of a 52-year-old man who's brought in by EMS with a decreased level of awareness. He was found on the street unresponsive by bystanders. According to the hospital record, he's known to be on a methadone maintenance program for the past three years after being addicted to Percocet following an ACL repair of his knee. He has no other documented past medical history. On arrival in the resuscitation room, his vital signs reveal a normal heart rate, blood pressure, and an O2 sat of 96% on a non-rebreather, and a temp of 35.8. His respiratory rate is only 4 per minute. He has no obvious signs of trauma. His pupils are mid-sized and poorly reactive. His skin appears normal, chest is clear, his limb reflexes are difficult to obtain, He's given 0.4 milligrams of naloxone, followed by 1 milligram and then 2 milligram. Soon thereafter, he wakes up and after about 30 minutes, jumps off the stretcher and starts making a beeline for the exit. Dr. Thompson, naloxone, considered to be one of the universal antidotes, is an excellent antidote for opiate toxicity as it's short-acting and it's a pure antagonist. What pearls and pitfalls can you tell our listeners about the appropriate use of naloxone in the ED?
2: The therapeutic dose of naloxone is actually 0.01 milligram per kilogram. If you were dosing a child, for example, who had inadvertently got into grandma's Tylenol number 3, for an example, or you're using it in the operating room to reverse sedation, etc., in the operating room, so for my patient with a, de- a depressed level of consciousness who presents to the emergency department looking like a narcotic toxidrome, so that doesn't mean necessarily that it's an opioid, but narcotic means sleep-inducing. So someone who's depressed level of consciousness, depressed respiratory rate, potentially hypotensive, potentially bradycardic, potentially low oxygen saturations, for example, potentially small pupils, etc. For that patient, um, I'm going to use a dose of naloxone to see whether I can stimulate the patient enough to prevent the necessity of intubation. So in those patients, I actually use about half that therapeutic dose and I would start with 0.005 milligrams per kilogram. So practically an amp of naloxone contains 0.8 milligrams in ACC in some preparations. So 0.8 would be the therapeutic dose for an 80 kilo guy. I'm gonna give him half of that. I'm gonna start at 0.4 and see what happens to him. And then I will increase the amount of naloxone I gave this patient. If I get a partial response, for example, and he's still not breathing adequately, but now makes some respiratory efforts, I'm going to give him another 0.4. But it's individualized, and if I get absolutely no response, I would probably double the dose and 0.4 to 0.8. The next amp of our vial of naloxone is marketed as 2 milligrams. I might try 2 milligrams if I had absolutely no response And they still have that um, narcotic toxidrome. You could even go all the way up to 10 milligrams with no adverse effects if you were still convinced that this is a narcotic sort of toxidrome and you want to see whether it's reversible. Because there are some opioids that bind very tightly to those receptors. And so it might take a lot of naloxone because it's a competitive process to knock them off the receptors.
1: And as Dr. Thompson's mentioning, titrating to respiratory rate, that's one big teaching point, right? Some people think you're titrating to mental status, you want them to wake up, or you're titrating to bigger pupils. But in fact, naloxone's been shown to not even work if you don't have a decreased respiratory rate. So you're titrating the naloxone to respirate.
0: And And what's your goal there? Mm -hmm. So your goal is a normal respirate, normal O2 set?
1: Yeah, I'd say, you know, a respirator above eight would make me happy, but <laughs> you just want to see improvement. Once you see improvement, you know it's working.
0: Okay, and so what would be the dangers of over-reversing, so to speak?
1: Like this gentleman that you've presented in the case,
2: he has taken on a long-acting opioid or opiate, methadone in particular. And methadone has got a very long half-life. It's over twenty-four hours. The chances are this guy's agitated now. He's distressed at being, you know, probably having abdominal pain and cramping because we've reversed the methadone for this gentleman. And he's leaving the emergency department. But because naloxone's got a relatively short half-life compared to that on the methadone, it could be, you know, another half hour, another hour where he's found down or maybe not found down but actually dies because no one discovers him. Because the naloxone is now gone and the methadone takes over, in the emergency department there are very few risks other than prematurely
1: waking your patient and causing opioid withdrawal.
0: Mm -hmm. There's
1: also the caveat of pulmonary edema that can be induced by naloxone, but I don't believe that's dose dependent. And often with if patients present with pulmonary edema, it's never usually known if it's due to the opioid overdose or due to the naloxone because either one can cause it and it's certainly not dose dependent. So if you've got a patient who has responded to naloxone at whatever particular dose
2: it was, so if you've given them a total of 1.2 milligrams of naloxone and now they're breathing adequately and rousable if you stimulate them, then you want them to stay in that state so the literature suggests that two-thirds the wake-up dose per hour would be the appropriate infusion rate to start this patient on following their bolus dose, so wake-up bolus dose. I think it's more desirable to have a patient who is not fluctuating, and so the you don't wait for the naloxone to wear off so that then they get respiratory depression, respiratory failure, CO2, narcosis again.
0: Mm-hmm. How long does a naloxone generally take to wear off?
2: It's got about a 20 minute half-life, and okay. so five half-lives is a theoretical teaching for you know, getting rid of all of your drug from the system. So typically it's an hour, an hour and a half, and the patient's depressed
1: again if you allow that single bolus dose to wear off. And the infusion is important for drugs like methadone that have such a long Mm half-life.
0: So these patients really need to be titrated carefully and watched carefully in terms of their respiratory rate and O2-sat. And they aren't the kind of patient that you just kind of start on a drip and leave them. So Dr. Thurger, we've talked about naloxone use for opiates. Is there anything else we would consider naloxone for in the emergency department?
1: So... Naloxone is definitely the antidote of choice for opioids, and it, it works well for that, but you can consider it in other overdoses such as clonidine or dextromethorphan or some of the anti-epileptic drugs. There's not great evidence for it. There are some case reports for reversing sedation in that. Just think about it, but it's certainly not as good as it is for opioids in terms of an antidote. I think there's some non-specific awakening attributed to naloxone in lots
2: of different situations. If it brings your patient to a level of consciousness that they're breathing better on their own and their oxygen saturations are improving, then there's no harm in having given it to that particular patient if they had part of a toxidrome.
0: Let's say this patient, rather than being a methadone overdose, was a heroin overdose, which has a much shorter half-life than methadone. Can these patients generally be discharged after they've been stabilized with naloxone? Patients on methadone, the half-life is so long that all of these patients are going to end up being admitted.
2: Any methadone patient should be admitted to hospital for 24 hours after the last dose of naloxone.
0: Right. And so because heroin's half-life is so much shorter, when is it safe to send home a patient who's had a heroin overdose who's required naloxone?
2: four to six hours after you've turned off your naloxone infusion, if you've indeed had to use an infusion, would be safe because of the short half-life. However, the literature suggests because heroin is associated with a much higher incidence of acute lung injury, or ARDS if you use the old terminology, the literature suggests that you should keep all of those patients for 24 hours. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to come back if they're short of breath.
0: In terms of the question of when it's safe to discharge a patient who's come in with a presumed heroin overdose who's been responsive to naloxone, there was a study out of St. Paul's in Vancouver in 2000 from Academic Emergency Medicine, and they came up with a decision rule in terms of helping make this decision. It was a large perspective study, and they found that patients can be safely discharged home only one to two hours after administration of naloxone if they fulfill the following criteria. And there were six criteria. First, they have to have independent mobility. Second, their O2 sat on room air has to be greater than 92%. Third, their respiratory rate has to be more than 10. Fourth, their heart rate has to be more than 50. Fifth, they must have a normal temperature. And sixth, they must have a GCS of 15 so according to this study, if the patient fulfills all of these criteria, they can be safely discharged home. So we're likely to see more and more of these patients with methadone overdoses and oxycodone overdoses as the, the abuse of these drugs has actually been increasing over the last few years. In fact, there's been more overdose deaths having involved opioid analgesics than there have with heroin and cocaine combined in the last 10 years or so. So we should know how to identify these patients quickly and treat them appropriately. Let's start with the physical exam. Dr. Thurger, what are the most important clues on the physical exam for opiate intoxication that you had mentioned some of them before? But in particular, how good is meiosis at predicting opiate toxicity?
1: Well, opioids obviously fall under our depressant category, but when you're trying to specifically diagnose opioid based with with meiosis, it's a little tricky because each of the opioids act at different opioid receptors and not all of them act similarly. So you may have an opioid that causes meiosis and then some of them may not. So you can't count on that it's basically a constellation of symptoms that make you think of it. So a combination of depressed respiratory rate Decreased LOC, small pupils, decreased bowel sounds. Your blood pressure may be low, it may be normal. Your heart rate may be low, it may be normal. Don't be fooled by a high heart rate too and think that because a patient's tachycardic or mildly hypertensive that you don't actually have an opioid toxidrome because patients who have a respirator of four are going to be hypoxic and therefore tachycardic. So don't let some higher vital signs fool you to think that it's not an opioid toxidrome. Your biggest clues are your respirate, your level of awareness, and sometimes the pupils can help. But don't count on your pupils being small because not all of the opiates act the same.
0: Mm-hmm. They could have a co-ingestion, maybe they had cocaine and heroin together. Completely. It
1: could be speedball and then, and then all bets are off, right? You can have multiple toxidromes going on at the same time.
0: In terms of the opiate intoxication, what other toxicological illnesses can be confused with opiate toxicity and how would you differentiate them? You know, Usually when the patient comes in with all the vital signs low and meiosis, we're thinking it's an opiate overdose of some sort. What other things should we think about if a naloxone not working, for example? What are some of the other toxicological emergencies we should think yeah, about? So other
1: toxicologic causes of a depressed Toxidrome. include ethanol, they include your benzodiazepines, any other sedative hypnotics. Now GHB is a popular one that can cause sedation and it'll look like an opioid toxidrome. Hydrocarbons, so whether it's chloral hydrate or sniffing glue or sniffing paint thinners or, or spray paints, if you inhale or sniff bag enough of it, you can have quite a a sedate patient. And then you have to think of non-toxicologic things as well, obviously. So structural causes and metabolic causes, but those are the main toxicologic things on our differential.
0: In this case, the nurse hands you an ECG. It shows sinus bradycardia and a corrected QT interval of 530. Dr. Thompson, how would you explain this ECG finding and how would you manage it?
2: The prolonged QT is characteristic of methadone, even therapeutic amounts. The uh, methadone can cause that. There's some literature that suggests you can reverse it with naloxone. That it might shorten the QT. I would check the electrolytes, the lesser electrolytes. I would use magnesium if the patient's you know QT was continuing to prolong. Five thirty is. You know, it's yes it's prolonged, but is it long enough that I'm gonna do anything actively about it other than investigate that there isn't anything else on you know going on that might also be correctable?
0: Mm-hmm. hmm We talked a little about urine talk screens before, in particular with opiates. How how useful is a urine talk screen and what should our listeners know about if an opiate is positive on the urine tox screen if they do a urine tox screen. What, what does it tell us? And there's how... two
2: different kinds of urine tox screens, right? There is the point of care testing, and that is a panel of eight different substances, which are not particularly specific or sensitive for any that are on that panel. There are two on those point of care testing. One is for opioids, and that's specific against coding. So if you've had a product that was Similar in structure to codeine, it will turn it positive if it's present in your urine in high enough concentrations. And so in the past has actually been falsely positive in patients that ate poppy seed bagels because the opioid that's in poppy seeds is where we derive codeine from and morphine and some of the other pure opiates. There's also, on the newer point-of-care testing, a panel spot against methadone in particular. So yes, it will be positive if you have high enough concentrations of methadone in your urine. Does that help me? No. I've had a toxidrome. I've treated the patient based on the toxidrome. And if they've used methadone in the last couple of days, maybe even a week, because it's got such a long half-life, it could be positive doesn't explain why they're in the emergency department now.
0: OxyContin has been taken off the market in Canada and has up till now been a very common drug of abuse. What can we expect in terms of what people who are on OxyContin, what they'll replace it with and what should we know as emergency doctors?
1: That's a good question. So now that Oxycontin's off the market, it's been replaced by OxyNeo, which comes in similar formularies minus a couple here and there. And it's a new gel formation that was designed basically to decrease the amount of misuse and abuse of long-acting opioids. The idea being that you can't crush it, it's, quote, harder to melt and inject, it's harder to abuse. But having said that, people who want to abuse it will find ways to do it. We've had cases, for example, of people microwaving their OxyNeo in order to be able to inject it. And that usually goes bad just in terms of sepsis and other problems associated with IV drug use, especially with that gel formation. But it's, it's important to talk about because opioids, because of physicians like us, they're the number one drug of abuse in North America. And so those are the drugs that are being abused and we should be familiar with it. I think I might mention something about fentanyl patches as well.
2: Fentanyl patches are often abused and are done so by cutting them into different pieces, using multiple on the skin, for example, swallowing them, making teas out of them. Remember when you alter any pharmaceutical preparation, that you alter the pharmacokinetics of that preparation. So if you have a fentanyl patch, for example, on your skin, and you found if find a patient down, you find depressed narcotic toxidrome and you remove all of the patches from their skin, you still have a couple of doses at least within the subdermis and the dermis that are being absorbed and you can't get rid of those as a physician. So you may have to maintain your patient on naloxone for longer than you would otherwise expect saying, well, I've taken off the patch. And if you cut the patch, you take away that 72-hour delivery system or if you swallow the patch and it's eroded by the acid in the stomach then you take away the 72-hour delivery system and you get the drug all at once so huge overdoses because of the number of doses that are in each particular patch because of altering the way that you're using it, not using it
1: properly. And there's a whack of fentanyl in those patches, like in a 50-microgram patch. You have 100 doses. That's right. Although they're formulated to have 72 delivered
2: reliably, there are extra doses. There
1: can be about 5 milligrams of fentanyl in a patch. So if you were to cut that open and lick it all in one swipe, you'd have an opioid or to, overdose <laughs> or to drop it into the
2: you know the waste bin and you've taken off your patch and a little child comes along and eats the rest of it there's still 28 doses there so again f- responsible
1: pharmacokinetics and you know f- responsible
2: parenting etc
1: and responsible prescribing because those okay. fentanyl patches are hot items on the street they're quite valuable yes. with the amount of narcotic that's in them
0: Well, that almost wraps it up for this month's episode. Next month, we're going to have with us the triumphant return of both Dr. Anil Chopra and Dr. David Carr. Together, these guys wrote the Tintinelli chapter on vascular catastrophes. We're going to be talking about aortic dissection, peripheral vascular disease, and a bunch of other vascular stuff. Before we go, I'd like to leave you with this month's quote of the month, and it's from Charles Darwin. It's not the strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent that survives. It's the one that is most adaptable to change. So until next time, take it easy.